Hi, I'm Gareth Kane. Welcome to the Net Zero Business Podcast. Okay, today I'm joined by Dr. Ollie Jones, who's Associate Director of Sustainability and Innovation at Condal. Condal is a global, independent, multidisciplinary consultancy delivering sustainable engineering and design solutions across the built environment, according to their website, as I've been reading it out. But thank you for joining us, Ollie. No problem, Gareth, and thanks for having me on. Now, Ollie has a long career in architecture, both in academia and industry, but let's start at the beginning. When and why did you first get bitten by the sustainability bug? Uh, I mean, some people say it was with them forever. I don't think that's necessarily true with with sort of my journey. I think you, you don't know what you don't know, do you? And as I've been through architectural education, I was very much focused on architecture that wasn't about the architect, that wasn't about the edifice or the aesthetic of the building but that it was about the community and that it was about people so i was always trying to find a way that we could bring architecture back to communities and that we could bring architecture back to the public i suppose and back to the old riba charter of the original definition of the profession being as a sort of masters and um protectors of the public realm in in that sense and and then my career carried on I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity to do a PhD and I chose to do that PhD in human experience and how do we measure and monitor human experience in real and virtual environments. And and again, that was mainly because at the time I was really, really interested in health and well-being and architecture and the impact upon architecture and the environment that it has on people and occupants. So I was always moving towards this idea of how does it affect us and how, how do we... How do we experience different spaces? Yeah. I then was lucky enough to get a job uh, teaching and lecturing at Northumbria University. And over the course of sort of 10 years there, ended up being in charge of some of the architectural programs there, helping to train and deliver way too many architects into the profession, which I'm now, now that I'm in a, an engineering practice i'm now sort of reaping the benefits of or or the opposite depending on how you look at it but in in between that following the university i joined rider architecture as their research director which was a phenomenal role really enjoyed it and during the time there i realized that an awful lot of the research projects that we're engaging with and that we're kicking off and supporting were sustainable and you know we still work really really closely with rider but I was definitely at a point where I wanted to try and quantify impact. And because of the scientific background that I had with the PhD, I was really interested in those metrics and those measures. And then I'd heard that Kundal were committing to what seemed like a totally ludicrous initiative, yeah. hugely, hugely commendable. And I couldn't quite get it out of my head. And I was like, well, I, I kind of feel like I need to go and have a conversation and and maybe be part of this and try and push it forward on a on a global stage. And that's when I really, the bug sort of really bit me with regards to sustainability. The penny dropped. I'd been doing so much work in the space. Ended up working with a lot of sustainability directors. And actually, it was a bit like the rise of BIM, where everybody was a BIM manager or a BIM director. Well, now everybody was a sustainability director. And I kept coming across people who I sort of thought, eh, I think and just I could- more- Non-architects, BIM stands for? Uh, Building Information Modeling. 
Right. Um, and there was a huge boom in BIM sort of 10 years yeah. ago, a big, big hurrah around what it was going to bring to the industry. And it's been great, but actually sustainability sort of went the same way, a little bit faddy. There was a lot of jobs. There was a lot of salary increases. There was a lot of people going to change jobs. And then suddenly everyone was an expert. And I was working with a lot more with these people and thinking, I think I could probably run rings around you. So that's when, <laughs> that's when the conversation started and really picked up with making a move and and then i moved to condle and now i'm at condle building a part of a 150 strong global sustainability team yeah the, pra- the practice is 1200 26 countries and that team works across all of those countries all the different legislations to deliver sustainability the only place strangely that we didn't have a presence as a global sustainability team was in our head office in newcastle yeah. and so there was just the perfect opportunity to start to build that team and really start to contribute to the global strategy around sustainability and innovation. Yeah. Well, we'll go into the pledge in a second. Yeah. But I was just wondering, I work across a whole wide range of sectors and um, with people from all different pr- professions, but I do find architects were one of the, the the sort of first movers in sustainability. Do you have any views why that might be, or do you agree with that? I suppose I should say for that opinion. <laughs> um, do you have any opinions of why that might be? Oh, I mean, this is I. Not only have I trained over a thousand, I'm friends with over, <laughs> over uh, at least over two. So uh, be careful what I say or, or not. So, in as my my reputation precedes me in just speaking my mind. I I said this to Harriet Harman actually that there is a huge issue within our profession in architecture and in construction, that architects were tasked with delivering a sustainable future. Yeah. And we've been talking about, you know, we we as a profession in architecture said for, for ages, oh, you know, we've, we've been saying this for 20 years, we've been saying this for 30 years. Something's going wrong. If we've been saying it for that long and no one's getting on board, and, if, and you only have to look at the built environment declares ledger, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's a out of what appears to be 52,000 registered architects in the UK, there's only 7,000 signatures on the built environment declares. Right. And an architecture declares, I think it's only about 15,000 the last I checked. So yeah. where are the other, where are the other 30, 40,000 <laughs> architects that have been trained? And, and that's, that's been my problem. And I think I've all, but I've always been cynical of architecture in some respects in the, you're either in one of two camps you're either about the people and you're about the planet or you're kind of about yourself and you're yeah. about those egocentric edifices the era of the star architect you know yeah. I, I mean i remember when you know fosters signed the um the architects declare yeah. and then immediately submitted planning permission for the tulip in london you know well, come on guys so <laughs> you, you probably get you, you, you probably maybe got it's my... just the architects I know, and if you've got any complaints about that statement, please send them to Ollie, not me. Uh, but uh, I've got, well, well, I've got to yeah. I've got to say that the yeah. the the architects that I do work with, you know, through yeah. the podcast, the other podcast that yeah. I work with on Future X, like the the evangelists that you meet in architecture, yeah. the game changers, they light me up and fill me full of energy and inspiration every single time. But the problem, I think, is that they're always smaller outfits. You know, I've yet to right. come across a really big outfit that just has a hundred percent that mentality. Mm-hmm. And have you found a big difference between industry and academia's attitudes to sustainability? Oh, without without a shadow of a doubt, I think 
that's always going to be a challenge. You know, the rate of change within industry and particularly in an area like sustainability, where things are changing every month. You know, I try and let yes, last year was an incredible year trying to keep abreast of all of the legislative changes that were going on internationally. It was it was unbelievable. It was impossible. There's so much coming forward, you know, and there's a lot of it, it's how do we sort the noise from the signals in terms of what actually is happening. And I think that save a few really bespoke niche projects that are going on in the academic community, which are of unbelievable value, the general ability for academia to educate people on sustainability in the way that we need to educate sustainability has been hampered by this push towards a much more research-focused university atmosphere. Universities really focused on research and innovation, and so we're getting some beautiful niche pieces of progression and development and innovation. But when we're trying to educate a workforce and educate students on how to do building physics and energy modeling and uh, how to do whole life carbon assessments and uh, life cycle assessments and circularity strategies, that that's not even part of a curriculum. It's you know it's really difficult to find those little clusters. Yeah, that's interesting because my sustainability career started at Newcastle and then Teesside University. Yeah. And particularly Teesside was outward looking and tended to get the response of, oh, you academics, you're all fine in theory, but you don't live in the real world. Money comes first and all the rest of it. But it sounds like that's spun around for you that it's the, the business side is driving harder mm-hmm. than the, the academic side. Yeah, well, the, it, it's like anything, isn't it? You know, there's there's amazing partnerships and collaborations and then there's there's challenges, you know, that like and we have those amazing partnerships and collaborations with you know the people like the UK Extreme Weather Lab, uh, Newcastle University, people, you know, we've got collaborations and partnerships across the northeast, across the UK and, and across the world in different universities. So that yes, they are bearing fruit. I think universities sometimes struggle with the traditional business model of oh, do you want to sponsor a knowledge transfer partnership PhD student when in reality we're trying to get businesses so universities to be more like businesses and businesses to be more like universities mm-hmm. and there's a we're always stuck in that middle bit aren't we yeah so we've been teasing it for a bit there but this net zero pledge if you go on the Condal website the first thing big letters on the front is we will achieve net zero carbon on all our projects by 2030 and that's the big bold pledge that you mentioned let's go into that but let's pick it apart so it's 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 zero carbon design and we're open to talking about all the definitions that are around this when you're trying to deliver a zero carbon scheme it's not always in our gift and something i've been arguing for a long time is that no but there within our within the construction sector within the service sector it is in your gift if you make sure that everything you do is to deliver a zero carbon or a lower carbon building you know it drive all those efficiencies through your services and it, you can only control what you can control if it goes back to the client and the client says oh, i'm not i'm not going to do that bit or i'm not going to do this bit or it gets value engineered by the contractor so there are we recognize that there were cultural challenges within the construction sector part of it's about client education part of it's about wider design team buy-in but there's all of these challenges with trying to get a lower carbon, a zero carbon project on the ground. Yeah. And, you know, we can't do that without offsets at the minute. It fundamentally doesn't happen. But it's worse than that in practice. In practice, you can't do it because maybe part of the design team hasn't quite bought into it. Yeah. Or you can't do it because 
the client seeing the cost, the escalating costs of it. And uh, part of this is about policy and legislation being a driver and a push and taxation. But we need all those areas of market pull and market push to be able to get people to realize that there is an economic benefit in doing it. Therefore, the decisions about higher capital spend to deliver a net zero building aren't as much of a conversation or a challenge. And when Kundal were looking at this, it sort of just comes down to, well, we really want to commit to something. What can we commit to? Yeah, well, like any large organization, as I said, there's sort of 1,200 people in Kundal, we have to try and really reinforce and deliver cultural and behavioral change. And I think part of that is around leading from the top with, with regards to a vision, but then also educating and working with all the layers of the business to bring everybody on and yeah. show everybody that it's possible. The the commitment from Kundal is zero carbon design by 2030 and that all of the work that we produce will be lower carbon, focusing on delivering a zero carbon project. The kicker for this is obviously, as I said, you can't deliver zero carbon design without offsets. So we're also working on developing a, a novel solution that radically reforms and changes the offset space, which we can come on to yeah. later on. But the challenge is every discipline, every person, every level in the business has to be focused on making their business activities zero carbon. And is that life cycle carbon or in-use carbon for the buildings? It's like it's life cycle carbon. It includes operational and embodied. We know we can't hit zero carbon on embodied. We're not idiots. Yeah. <laughs> but the aspiration is there. The commitment is there that if there is a lower carbon option, then we will go down that route. Now, the, the last 18 months before we announced this was looking at, right, we don't want to scare our current client base. What can we do? Well, let's mm -hmm. run an internal exercise and talk to all of that client base around the plans, inform them that the fact that Kundal is, is, is only going to be working with clients who are attempting to deliver zero carbon buildings after 2030. And the response was remarkable. You know, there's, there was a lot of worry within the board I think it's fair to say about well, what how's this going to affect business? How's it going to affect the bottom line? But actually, you know, at some point, you can't be pioneering and you can't lead, yeah, if you're not on the edge of something that's reasonably risky to throw out there. And yes, we're relying on a lot of other things falling in place. You know, the as everyone is, we're relying on legislative changes, policy to support us taxation, incentives, all of these things coming into play, but they're out of our control. What is within our control is the work that we do. Yeah. So there were, we thought, let's make that commitment early doors that we are going to try and position the entire business to deliver zero carbon design on all projects by 2030. Is it a form of choice editing for your customer base? If somebody comes to 2031 and says, we want to design lowest possible cost, we don't care about emissions, will Kundal say, no, thank you? I Well, I think Kundal are on, a, are on a trajectory where they're repositioning themselves in the market. A lot of the jobs that Kundal are getting now are really international, internationally sort of pioneering, leading. They're working with some huge companies globally. And while there are an awful lot of projects that work within our cities and our regions on a daily basis, we're seeing this uplift of the most interesting, most sustainable projects and challenges worldwide coming our way. 
And I honestly think that's part of our open commitment in terms of the direction that we want the business to travel. So, yeah, yeah in 2031, if someone comes to the business and says, oh, I've got a, I've got a scheme, do you want to work on it? It's going to be really high carbon or it's, we're not bothered about net zero. We've made the commitment. I can't see us doing that work. Now, the what I can see happening is a conversation with that client and saying, look, you've, and I would like to think by 2030, we'll have a new government in, we'll be in a position where there's legislative changes afoot and we'll be able to have a conversation with the client and say, look, these, these are the reasons why you should do this. You know, we're already doing assessments in our in our team, in our sustainability team of global portfolios around when those buildings strand yeah. and when those assets aren't worth what anybody thinks they're worth anymore. And we're already seeing the large portfolio holders and investment funds really start to screw down the prices on buildings and assets and portfolios based on stranding assessments. So they'll do a, a stranding assessment um, using the CREM methodology and then we'll look at, all right, this building on this line here is not going to reach net zero unless we do these interventions by this date. And by the way, it's stranded either in 2030 or 20. 2028. Now, a lot of the assessments I'd done previously were towards 2028, 2030. But in in what's fair to say in poorer regions of the country, so like the Northeast, I'm looking at portfolios that stranded in 2016, 2014 already. And the asset owner has no idea the the until we've done the assessment that that asset is stranded. What that means is it's worth a hell of a lot less than they think it's worth because yeah. If they wanted to sell it, somebody is going to have to pay to make all of those changes to make that building align with the 2050 targets. Yes. So is that that's obviously you saying we do not want to design something that'll become a stranded asset is a is a huge driver. But for for any developer, back, you know, if, if you yeah, if you if you've got a developer that comes to you and wants to put a great scheme on the ground, then you're just like, well, why? Or even if you've got a developer that just wants to turn an asset, you know, I want to build this and sell it. But you're fine, but you, it's not going to be worth it. You think it's going to be worth unless you, do, <laughs> unless you do it a sustainable way. We're still in that transitionary period now where yeah. people can build things and sell things that aren't sustainable. Yeah. I think behaviorally, we're going to be moving into a into an area pretty quickly where it becomes very hard to sell things at the price that you think they're worth if they're not mm -hmm. sustainable. So you mentioned the, the the sort of board level discussions on this. How did the the policy originate? Where did it come from? Well, I wasn't in the business when it originated because yeah. it was one of the instigators and one of the attractive things that that, that drew me to Cundall. Yeah. But I do know a few of the key characters that were involved in it, and it and it was just individuals passionate about process and about being in the right market in the future. And there was a big initiative that is still going on in Cundall around blue ocean strategy and moving moving the business away from the red ocean where there's a race to the bottom on fees, people are cutting one another's throats to win a job into a higher value market space where you genuinely become more of a trusted advisor for the client. Mm -hmm. um, and in that higher market, here higher value market space, you're looking at, well, what services are next? What are the biggest problems that are clients are facing tomorrow and the day after that and how do we develop services that can help them in that space and we've definitely seen that in sustainability services in that 
there's probably about 16, 17 different sustainability services that we offer. And at the bottom end here are all the things like building modeling and hot L, all of the sort of very rote, normal things that need delivering on projects. But these are being eaten up at a rate of knots by the market. You know, every man and his dog want to deliver building modeling and part L and sustainability statements. Whereas the other end is really, really interesting as well. You know, this the other end's around green finance options and around circularity and around ESG strategies. And how do we develop new services around power and renewable energy and offset strategies? So that that's this is a really really developing space um that is is really sort of funding and fueling the massive growth of Kundal's sustainability team yeah you've mentioned offsetting a couple of times obviously this is an ever controversial topic mm-hmm. i lived through the original sort of carbon neutral and then the backlash against carbon neutral and you know my personal view happens to be if we can, if we could get offsetting to work, why wouldn't we do it? But mm-hmm. uh, you've been talking about developing sort of alternatives to the traditional purchase of carbon credits. Yeah. So I, you know, it's no surprise, as you've mentioned there, Gareth, that, that the voluntary carbon offset market is absolutely broken. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's my view that because it's broken because it's being treated as a financial instrument. It's broken because it's been commoditized in the way that it has. You know, I even disagree with the idea of a, of a fixed carbon price for different areas and different locations. So I'll come on to that. One of the things that we're looking at, and this is coming to the market really quickly um, this year, in the we talk about ESG, we've got the environment bit down, we're starting to get to grips with the governance bit, but it's fair to say that the social bit is is very much in need of some attention. And the UK's got a really good reputation for social value and and fair play you know we've done a lot of hard work we've put in the hard yards you've got people like the social value portal we've got ppno 6-20 the social value model around procurement and social value we've got the toms we've got national performance framework but all these things that that are there but if you're being hypercritical about those things they've been phenomenal to get us to a position but what we really run the risk of doing is creating a system for consultants. I'm saying this as a consultant. Yeah. A system for consultants that's just about ticking boxes, that is a is a road service around really faceless social value metrics that don't really add any impact to communities. Now, that's a really harsh judgment of where our current social value ecosystem is. And and you must measure that against the fact that actually the UK has probably got one of those mature social value offerings globally. Mm-hmm. But it still needs to evolve. We've done the first stage. We've made lists. We've made checklists. We've ticked boxes. We've developed entire systems around that and entire business models around it. I think the next stage is around how do we go hyper-local how do we how do we adopt that sort of that moniker think global act local but how do yeah. we make the metrics um make the metrics stack up so that we can compare places that we can really get to grips with the data and how we're handling the data and draw parallels and cross reference it with health databases and all the stuff that's important that we should really be doing that's the bit we need to get to and that doesn't come from one one organization or one national body being the people to go to to measure social value that's nonsense so the our idea around social value is that with a carbon credit it's actually more about social decarbonization 
So yeah. we're launch, we're launching a service with four or five very big clients in tow at the beginning of March around social decarbonization. And the idea then, I'll not go too much into it until we sort of launch it, but the, yeah. the overarching idea is that we can create a carbon offset that is also socially focused on delivering social value and impact. And so would that be energy poverty or? Well, it, so any any asset within the local environment that needs decarbonizing, but also has high social impact value. And to mind, this goes to all the things that, that local authorities are struggling to deal with. Swimming pools that are closing, libraries that are closing, community centers, village halls. Then you go another layer, you go Department of Education, and look at our schools. Now, all of these things that we know that are critical to our uh, social regeneration of our, and economic regeneration of our communities, they're high on this list of social impact. Mm -hmm. And they're the things that we need to decarbonize first. And everyone's like, well, you know, can you really just invent your own carbon offset? Well, actually, we've we've done this a couple of times with events around the world, and we've shown our working out. We've been super transparent around how we've assessed the level of carbon that was in something. And then we have gone to a traditional voluntary carbon offset market to deliver them. But we know the first bit of the puzzle. We know how to assess how much carbon's needed to be offset. Mm -hmm. We can assess the carbon opportunity, so the carbon saving opportunity in the solution. So all we really need to do is take that money there from that client and apply it to that problem there. Yeah. It's not standard. It's definitely disruptive. The financial markets don't like it. But then what's it got to do with them? It's, <laughs> it, it's a, it's a community-focused activity. And currently, you know, the American carbon offset market is over 390 billion. Mm-hmm. Where on earth has that 390 billion gone? Where's the impact? Other than more deforestation in the Amazon, you know, a lot of that carbon credit was around forestry in Canada, was around forestry in South America. Well, all I can see is stats around that getting worse and worse and worse. So how about we try to fix the problem at a local level and apply the benefit and impact at a local level? Yeah, um, I'm trying to remember how many years ago I was involved with Carbon Neutral Newcastle, which became yep. Carbon Neutral Northeast. And one of the things we were doing then was putting money into, as I, that's why I brought up energy poverty, uh, put into energy poverty schemes. Mm -hmm. Now, if I remember rightly, the, the purists still attacked it because they said that because the UK was signed up to the Kyoto Protocol, yep. the government should be funding those schemes in order to meet their carbon emissions. Um, I must admit, my attitude was... If you've got to find a way of cutting carbon and bringing people's houses up to a livable standard, mm -hmm. why wouldn't you do it? You know, let's forget the purism of who should be doing this and all the, the moralizing. My, I take a very pragmatic view of it. If we can get some cash and we can put it to a good cause, why wouldn't you do it? Totally. And I think the only thing we need to be purists about is, is there a carbon saving? You know, yeah. Some things are nice to do because they're good for people. Well, that's not what an offset fund's for. If, yeah. if it's good for people and it saves carbon, then you can spend some carbon offset on it. And mm -hmm. I think that is the only rule around that carbon offset is, is the carbon saving verifiable and transparent? If it is, the money could come from anywhere. Yeah. So, we, you know, we've, we've and because we've, we have this acute need, we have an, an unbelievably acute need, as you well know, in the Northeast, 
to try to decarbonize and insulate our homes and do all the things that are going to save us carbon along the way. So what we're working on at the moment is identifying a range of assets within the regions that should be top of the list in terms of this, working with some really big clients on, right, you have committed to being a sustainable company. And one of the big drivers for this is the anti-greenwash legislation. Yeah. Because people who are making promises, it was a minor stroke of genius from the government, but not to be unexpected in how sort of slightly underhand it is. But let's make promises and pledges for the next five years around what we're going to do. And we'll we'll rake the money in by telling everybody we're going to be so green and so sustainable. And then, oh, by the way, we're now going to hold you to account for that and create a piece of legislation that will fine you unbelievably if you don't deliver it. So that has been a... Or you've got to backtrack, so the reputational damage might be even worse than the fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a real instigator for some of these businesses. Some of the businesses are doing it because it's the right thing to do. But every one of them has got the idea, well, we've said it, we need to do it. Well, on the podcast, I nominated the Advertising Standards Agency as my hero for the year for their... <laughs> putting greenwash to the sword far or brutally than I would expect a, a government quango to ever do, but they, they seem to be relishing it. Yeah. We've got to fund the green to the green transition somehow. So I would <laughs> I would expect a I would expect a, a slew more of uh, of taxation policies coming through on waste and embodied carbon. When I was scrolling through your LinkedIn profile, I saw one of the endorsements you had. Normally these things are copper plate. Oh, they're fantastic. They're the best professional I've ever met. Mm-hmm. But one of yours said you get frustrated with the pace of change in the industry. So I, I thought I'd pick up on that and ask you, what's holding the industry back? I, and do you have any yeah. hints and tips to get to, to accelerate it? I'm not, how long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a I think legislation's holding the industry back. Yeah. First and foremost, I think that we are in an absolute vacuum of leadership. We found ourselves in a in this this stagnant moment of industry. You know, government came out and said, "Oh, we're going to do loads of great things. We've got a, a huge push on net zero. We're going to achieve this. We're going to put a roadmap out there." And industry's like, "All right, okay. Well, we can start to mobilise. We'll get and and people are still waiting." And then all government did from then was move from well, we're going to do net zero. Oh, no, no, we're going to reframe that. And we're, we're now interested in retrofit. Oh, no, no, we're, we're going to reframe that. And we're now interested in renewable energy. So the, this is entire constant shifting of the focus of our sustainability policy. And then actually even worse, you know, I wrote about this pretty three or four years ago when the when that focus was shifting. The problem now in the last two years is that we've seen nothing but an erosion of our yeah. commitments by government. And that does nothing, it does absolutely nothing for levels of confidence in the UK industry, in UK businesses, levels of confidence for ex-international companies wanting to invest in the UK. How many articles, and and a few of them were stopped through media, but how many articles made it through saying that there were huge investment funds looking at withdrawing from the UK because of our rollback on all of our things. And you've only got to look at all the other stuff we're doing around water and our water companies absolutely polluting the life out of our environment and how toothless the government is to address that problem. To see that was never coming. This The roadmaps are never coming. So industry was waiting for the roadmaps. Government was saying, oh, no, technology will solve the problem. So we've gone from business solving the problem because they realised, well, we haven't told business what to do. 
to a technology, this divine innovation will solve mm-hmm. the problem. And technology will solve quite a lot of the problem in my mind, but not without government leadership, the right level of funding, the right legislation to tax the bad players and incentivize the good players. Um, you know, you need those nudges within your ecosystem to, to shepherd business. And that we don't have those at the moment. So that, that's the biggest challenge for me. The second challenge that's really high up there is just culture and behaviors. Mm-hmm. In an industry, you know, let's talk about the built environment and construction, an industry that's infamous for being slow to change. And it's just how do we how do we stop having conversations about why it's important to decarbonize? Mm-hmm. I'm looking out the window and we've got record storm after storm. We've got record 100-year flooding incidents where there's two a year. Like yeah. what, what's like, <laughs> this, this doesn't make sense anymore, guys. What's going on? Yes. I should have mentioned also in your uh, LinkedIn profile, you had uh, you mentioned resilience mm-hmm. and adaptation. So we've just, I suppose we've just touched on that as well, because, you know, with the best will in the world, as we you, you mentioned, the, the storms that are currently ravaging the UK, and there's another one just brewing as we speak, uh, that even if we hit 1.5 degrees centigrade, there are going to be impacts. So how's that working its way into, into the industry? Is it something that clients and customers are getting increasingly worried about, about designing and building resilient buildings or is it something you're pushing out well, it, it's definitely something we're leading on local authorities are becoming more aware of it in terms of the fact that it's having a huge cost to the local authorities and they're actually starting to cotton on to the fact hang on a minute this is costing us millions and millions of pounds a year to to remedy but we're still not seeing the policy from local authorities come forward you know mm-hmm. if that's the case why not ask every single project to run a physical risk assessment and a climate change risk assessment for adaptation and resilience on every single project that looks at the future forecasting of all the data that we've got. You know, we have data on predicted weather patterns up to 2050. We can use those data sets to be able to advise local authorities and schemes. We're still in a situation where we have no real robust uh, policy around urban greening in yeah. in many locations in in really really protecting and safeguarding our tree canopies within our cities mm. because it's not just about the tree canopy to reduce air temperature and surface temperature and therefore bring down those super hot summers in you know three to five degrees in ambient yeah. air temperature but it all they also absorb a lot of water you know yeah. they, they mitigate against those the surface flooding risks that we get when we see all of this rain. So where's this policy? Where is it? Because yeah. I, I can't see it anywhere. And there's a huge economic opportunity. And that's a, I sometimes think I'm going crazy. You know, I talk to a lot of people in local authority and in central government around, look, if we we can fund a green transition, we've just got to tax yeah. the bad players. The problem is that those bad players are pretty wealthy and a lot of them fund our political parties. So. <laughs> well, there's a. I think there's another issue is that our whole planning system, legislative system, is very centralised. Mm-hmm. I think the best adaptation policy I've ever come across, and this uh, and this was ten years ago, so they were well ahead of the curve, was Portland, Oregon, which is the rainiest city in the US, and they have a local building code that if you want to put up a, a building, you have to um, design it to absorb all stormwater on site. Mm-hmm. 
so uh, we we don't get the 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 sewage events that that you mentioned before. Yeah. I, I just thought that was fantastic because not only is it more resilient to to increase in precipitation, it actually makes the city city centre look really nice because yeah. almost every building has a has a garden of some sort because the water has to soak away somewhere. Well, there's no way. There's no that there, there is no way for our government to address the shortcomings in our sewage system that need addressing. You know, that we you can't put any more pressure on the taxpayer or the public to pay those water bills to fund that infrastructure upgrade. So, you know, that that's one conversation. Where does that money come from? But the other conversation is we'll stop looking at the problem that way. You know, it, I know you're constantly holding a hammer, but everything in front of you doesn't have to look like a nail. Yeah. So, you know, maybe how about we just make sure exactly as you said, that we are recycling as much stormwater and that we have really robust grey water recycling so that we're just reducing the amount of water going back into the system, which will help which will help revive our ecosystems, which will have a huge boost on ecotourism that we haven't even really touched on in the UK. And and you know, we've lost so much money at the the locations across the UK, and I'm a keen fly fisherman, so I'll probably go off for one here. But the locations across the UK that have have really suffered economically because our rivers and our waterways have been polluted to such an extent that that is no longer an option to the for that community. You know, it's a really high value offer that doesn't exist everywhere in the world. And the UK had one of the most amazing leisure angling offers in the world, and it just yeah. it isn't there anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Gone so, a bit off on a tangent there. No, yeah, I'm just yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we've been we've been talking for quite a while. So just before before we finished, if you had to pick one thing that you're most proud of that you've achieved in your sustainability career, what would it be? Oh my goodness, I, I don't think I'm I'm not in a position to look back and and be. I, I haven't achieved enough. I think what I am really proud of, and that I really came to the fore during COVID, actually, so quite recent, was that we're really starting to see the benefit of the people internationally who are really moving and shaking in this space. And there's not that many people when you go country by country and you start really digging down into who's doing the most innovative, the most disruptive, sustainable innovations and products and services to drive and accelerate that, that net zero future. There's not that many people. So one of the things I'm most proud of is trying to convene those disruptors and collaborators into various projects um and, and and an informal network you know talking to each other i think is and working together across international boundaries is probably the only way that we're going to get there quickly enough and we saw that in during covid in the development of vaccines i would love to see something similar in how we tackle and address climate change but as i've as i've mentioned to you with this idea of the 100 year plan we need to try and wrestle environmental policy and public health policy to a large extent away from our local authorities and our central government in terms of policy and make them much more bespoke, much more local and hold our politicians to account as stewards of those plans in order to drive change and measure change. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And if somebody was joining your team, maybe straight from university, mm-hmm. To deliver this vision that Kundal set out, what's the the most important piece of advice do you think you would give them? I, I think the the landscape's always shifting. There's always more to learn. 
you know, everybody that comes into our teams, you know, there is, there's really no hierarchy. It's defined by experience. It's not defined by level or role. It's defined by, well, right, everyone's got something to learn every day. So it's that eagerness to learn. It's being aware and being really enthusiastic and really engaged with what's happening in the world with regards to legislation and trying to get a grasp of the holistic web of how everything is interconnected in the world of sustainability. <laughs> you know, material supply, material shortages, countries, entire countries, GDPs, you know, that all goes up, up and down with how circular is that country's economy? How do they treat their people? What's the level of national well-being? Everything is linked. The social, the environmental, the economic, it's all linked. And there are options and opportunities for a much better, much better economy, much better social health, much better environmental health within the UK that we are not recognising because our leaders and our politicians don't really, if they're honest, understand the opportunity that's in front of them and yeah. the window to do something about it is closing. So being someone who comes into a team who starts to grapple with that and learn about it and be interested in it, that's the most powerful thing you could do. Excellent. On that note, all I should, should do now is thank you very much for taking part. I think there's a whole wealth of wisdom and interesting perspectives on a quite a wide range of issues we covered there. So thank you very much, Ollie. Cheers, Gareth. Thanks a lot. If you find this episode of the podcast interesting, please do me two wee favours. First of all, give it a five-star rating to help others find it as well. And secondly, subscribe via your usual podcast provider so you'll get every episode into the future. Mm -hmm.